the highest point uh, in the continental U.S., about 14,495 feet. And if you climbed up to Mount Whitney and you looked southeast about 80 miles away, you know what you see? You see Death Valley, which is about minus 220 or 282 feet below sea level. So you have this contrast of the highest point in the continental U.S. and the lowest point in the continental U.S., 80 miles apart from each other. The top of the world and the bottom of the world. One is always cold, the other is always hot. And in the passage we're going to look at today, Paul takes us to the death valley of our soul. He takes us down to the lowest point a human being could ever be. And then he brings us by the work of what God did through his son Jesus Christ to what he calls the heavens of Jesus, the highest points. We're in a series called The Amazing Christian. And I'm so excited as we're going to look through the book of Ephesians and we're going to see the amazing things God has done that makes us his amazing people. And so I want us to dive into this. If you have a Bible, I encourage you to open up to Ephesians chapter 2. Uh, that's where we're going to be, and we're going to look at how we are made new by God. If you are uh, new to the Bible, Ephesians is towards the back. You want to go past 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Galatians, then you'll come to Ephesians. If you hit 1 or 2 Thessalonians or Hebrews or Titus, you went too far. Go back to the left. If you're using a Bible we have provided for you in the chairs, I'll be on page 1036. 1036. And in this journey, this morning, we are going to see a journey from the lowest point of death valley of the soul to the mountains of heaven because of the work of Jesus Christ. And in this, we're going to see three things. We're going to see the life of an unbeliever. And what is that made up of? What does it look like? Uh, how does it happen? And then we're going to see new life in Jesus. And then I want to talk about how we become new. So the life of an unbeliever, new life in Christ, and how we become new. So let's dive in first and foremost with the first one, a new life or life in the unbeliever. I want to take a look at this. Uh, Paul begins his address with this. He starts by taking us to death valley of the soul, the lowest point. And so we're going to kind of go through this passage this morning slowly and look at each phrase so that we can learn exactly what Paul is getting at. And my prayer is as we do that, the Holy Spirit comes and awakens your heart to the truth that are being described here. So uh, Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1. And you, he's continuing, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. He begins with uh, this uh, continuing address to the Christians saying that you were dead in your sins and trespasses. He identifies the state of all human beings apart from God. That we are dead in our trespasses this is a picture of bondage to sin, slavery with no hope. This is all of us were there before Christ, and those who don't have Christ are there currently. A bondage to sin in the trespasses of it. And then he goes in and he talks about three external parts of what it means to be separated from God, and then three internal parts parts of what it means to be separated from God. And we're going to walk through all of these. So the first one of the externals we're going to look through is the phrase that comes in verse 2. Let's continue on. In which you previously lived according to the ways of this world. 
So the first descriptor he gives is according to the ways of this world. This describes how Christians, when they were unbelievers, would live. It says they literally walked according to this world's values. They walked according to the world's system. They lived their lives under the control of evil ways. They bowed and let the flow of the culture determine where they go. The Apostle Paul describes this in Romans chapter 1, and he uses these two striking phrases. He says that they, were, they suppressed the truth. And not only did they suppress the truth, but it says because they suppressed the truth, their foolish hearts were darkened. You get the picture here. There's a consequence of just letting it all go. There's a consequence to just bowing to the culture. And the picture of to the ways of this world and living to that is that there's no defense It's just total conformity. This is a hard attitude that says, I don't care, or I just give up, and I'm going to live however I want. I'm just going to bow to every impulse that comes in my heart, every thought that comes in my head, all the things that are happening. It's just a giving over and letting the ways of this world dictate and move. Then he goes on to the next phrase in verse 2. Not only were you dead in your trespasses in which you previously lived according to the ways of this world, But then he gets kind of spooky. He says, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit now working in the disobedient. The next phrase of this unbeliever's life where they're influenced externally is they're influenced externally by the ruler of the power of the air. The unbeliever is influenced by a realm that we don't know much about. And the best translation of the power of the air that we can give is it's this cosmic, spiritually evil realm. It's a realm that we don't see with our eyes, but it's a realm that's ruled by Satan. In Revelation chapter 12, verses 3 and 4, Satan is referred to as the great dragon. Satan was once an angel who was praising God, and then he rebelled against God, and he seduced a third of the heavenly hosts, and they left, uh, they were kicked out of heaven because of the rebellion towards God, and they set up and were placed in this realm, this power of the air, this prison. Second Peter 2, 4 and Jude verse 6 talk about this realm. I'll give it to you again, 2 Peter 2, 4 and Jude 6. And it says that they will remain kind of contained there until the day of judgment when Christ returns. That's when this realm will be finally destroyed. But until that, God allows Satan to rule in this realm. And in that realm, he's considered the prince of that realm, the God of that realm. In John 12, in John 14, 30, in John 16, 11, he's called the God of this world or the prince of this world. In Mark chapter 3, verse 22, he's known as the prince of demons. And it's this realm that he gets to rule in, and and God allows this. So Satan is ruling this realm that's referred to as the power of the air. And what Paul is saying in our text here is that unbelievers are influenced by that realm. There is like an effect, a residue that comes off of that realm and comes into the lives of unbelievers. Let's look at the next phrase. So uh, according to the spirit of the power of the air, the spirit now working in the disobedient. That Greek word there for working is the same one that's in chapter 1 verse 20 when it says that God exercised power in Christ by raising him from the dead. It's the same word. There's this power that comes, this work 
that happens in the life of an unbeliever. So in a Christian, the power, the root that helps them work as God wants is the power of the resurrection. In the unbeliever, there's this attitude that comes from the ruler of the power of the air that causes disobedience. That's what's being ruled here. There's a hook that hooks unbelievers. It's kind of like this, and I don't know if you're like me, but I love this and I hate this. The pairing of a cell phone to a car to like listen to music or a podcast, right? I love it when it works. It's the coolest thing in the world. But when you're sitting there and you're not pairing and things are happening and you're trying to drive and you're trying to do, and you don't ever do that, always pull over <laughs> and make sure you're in park and then deal with your technical stuff and move on. But as I'm trying to pair, it's kind of like the same thing. Satan has this realm where he's ruling the power of the air and he's sending this signal. He's trying to pair with the unbelieving heart. And there's always a connect that way. When you have an unbelieving heart and Satan ruling the ruler of the air and they're pairing, there's never, ever any problems with connection. It's instantaneous. It's connected and paired. And that's what Paul is saying here. When people are living in an unbelieving state, they are working in the disobedient. They're working out what this ruler and the power of the air externally wants to have happen. Thankfully, in the Christian life, that pairing is disintegrated. And we're going to talk about that in a second. But in the life of the unbeliever, the pairing happens. When we think of demonic possession, when we think of demonic oppression, we have these images in our life, in our head of different uh, real dramatic reactions. People screaming and yelling and thriving and throwing things and they're possessed by a demon and all the you know, horror films that are depicting this. As, those all come into our heads. But most demonic activity looks really normal and calm. Because all Satan wants to do is get people to disobey God. Mission accomplished. All Satan wants to do is get people to disobey God. And once a person is walking in disobedience, mission accomplished. His chief desire is done. He doesn't have to do all that crazy stuff. Just simple rebellion against God. Simple lustful thoughts, simple sinful actions, simple greed, simple pride, simple gossip, simple tearing down another with your words behind their back, and Satan has got it. Mission accomplished. This phrase means, this phrase now working in the life of the disobedient, means their lives are characterized by disobeying God rather than living for God. This group prefers to live however they want. And notice, it doesn't say anything in here about an allegiance to Satan or a worshiping to Satan, but the allegiance is to themselves. It's to their own hearts, their own fleshly desires, the own things they want. The opposite of love is not hate. The opposite of love is self, is what the Bible teaches us. And if you dig into satanic worship, satanic worship, they don't worship Satan. If you look at satanic worship, they worship themselves. They say basically, do whatever you want. Do what feels good. Back in the spring, I was preaching at a New Lisbon Correctional Facility. It was a, a correctional, a medium security prison in our state. And I went down there, and before the service started, I had some time to kill. And the chaplain was showing me the library where they have... Uh, the prisoners can come and read books. And because it's a state government facility, 
They don't just have Christian books. They have books on every religion. And so I was perusing through some of these books, and they have books on satanic worship and books on the Wiccan religion. And, and I pulled them off, and I'm looking through, and you know what? I didn't see one thing that talked about worshiping Satan. You know what they're all filled with? Worship yourself. Do what you want. Fulfill your desires. Fulfill what those practices that come in your head. Live out what you want. You see, Paul says these external factors of this evil world come and pair with the unbeliever and makes them want these things. It becomes who they are. It goes on. And Paul says, even before Christ came along in our lives, we too were influenced by this. Look at verse 3. He says, we too all previously lived among them. We were all there. This isn't just people who have never accepted Christ. There's people who never accepted Christ and Christians, and, and Paul is saying this is how we used to live. We used to be like this. And then he continues on going into switching from the external to the internal, the internal forces we have that mark the life of the unbeliever. The first one is the fleshly desires. Look at verse 3. We too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires. He introduces this new term. And the term fleshly desires means that sinful nature inside of us. Because of the fall of Adam, we're going to talk about this more in a second, we have this desire, this, this almost homing device that moves towards sin. It's called this sinful desire, or some places in the Bible call it the old person, the old self. For Christians, the old self or sinful's nature is ultimately defeated because of Jesus Christ. However, sinful impulses still remain. For the Christian, sin is no longer the ruling force eternally that we are enslaved to. Instead, there is outward temptations that try to entice and reawaken that. Paul is not saying that Christians no longer have the ability to sin. What he is saying is they no longer have to be bound by their sin. They no longer have to be enslaved to it. It's been broken. However, unbelievers don't have that gift. They don't have that luxury. They are enslaved and bound by their sinful ways. That's why we cannot expect unbelievers to behave like believers. And I see Christians get all upset at people who are far from God and all their actions and how dare they do this and that. They have no choice. That's, they're have they're hardwired that way. They don't have the power of God living within them to resist that. They can't do anything but be ruled by sin. Apart from Christ, that's how it is. Let's look at the next one. Not only do we have fleshly desires we're dealing with in verse 3, but it says carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts. Not only do unbelievers live in sin, they allow it to dominate their minds. They allow it to dominate their thought life. Thought life leads to outward behavior. If you want to change your outward behavior, you have to change your thought life. Outward behavior is a direct result of our thought life. And an unbeliever, the whole person, their thoughts, their actions are enslaved to sin and its power. And that's what Paul is saying here. Are you seeing this picture that there really is no hope in themselves to get out of this mess on their own. That's what Paul's getting at here. He's trying to paint the picture as bleak and honest as he possibly can, and it's a dark one because they have no hope in their own selves to get free from this. 
They're enslaved to sin and his power. Now, what about, the question always comes about, what about nice believer, unbelievers? What about unbelievers who are nice people, who are kind? And that's a really good question because I know people who are very far from God who are extremely kind and wonderful people. In fact, sometimes their kindness suppresses some of the Christians I know. It's just they're very kind people. What about that? Paul is saying here, even the so-called little sins, which we have to be really careful we don't start naming and deciding that stuff, even the things that we would consider petty, like greed or gluttony or lying once in a while, even these are an offense to God. The greatest sin that many unbelievers who are very kind, nice people have is blowing off God. That's probably the greatest sin, if we're going to rank them, that you can have. Blowing off God. It's called pride. I can live my own way. And every unbeliever in that category has that sin, and that's why they are enslaved to this sinful power. That's why they're in rebellion against God and all that is good. Seminary president and pastor Brian Chapel wrote this. He said, recent anniversary celebrations of World War II and the liberation of Europe have again put before our eyes pictures of victims and heroes of the Holocaust. I was shaken to read a post-war account of Oskar Schindler, the daring German hero who daily risked his life employing his wealth to save the lives of 1,200 Polish Jewish people. After the war, this noble heart abandoned his wife, became a womanizer and a drunker, and fell into destruction and dependence on others. For some schnapps, he even pawned off the commemorative gold ring that had been fashioned for him from the false teeth of those he rescued. How could one so noble so f- fall so far? Because there's no temptation out there in the world that does not have common chords of resonance with the human heart apart from God. You see, when you're not living for God, you're always in range of this pairing signal that will come and reawaken who we are in our core with our sinful nature. A wise person once said, my sin was all the more incurable because I did not think of myself a sinner. See, that's the other part. We don't even realize this. The final phrase for the internal part of the unbeliever is that they are by nature children under God's wrath, it says. It says, in our, in, we carried out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts, and we were by nature children under wrath as the others were also. When he's talking about here children by nature, children under wrath, he's talking about this idea that I mentioned a little earlier called original sin. That's the theological phrase for it. It means that when Adam sinned in the Garden of Eden, we all were brought into Adam. When he sinned, a curse was placed upon every human being after him. And because of that, we have a sinful nature. There's this thing inside us that pulls us towards sin. We don't have to train it. We don't have to uh, work out so it gets stronger. It's there very, very strong, right? And we know this is true because you don't have to train a child to sin, do you? You train them to eat, you teach them to bathe, you teach them to brush their teeth. It's funny, you don't have to teach them to rebel. What happens when you say, whatever you do, don't touch that, right? There's this thing inside of us, that's the sinful nature that's passed down from Adam that's alive in every single human being. So when we stand before God as sinners, not only are we sinners in action, but we're sinners by nature as well. 
And that's what he's getting at here. Your children under God's wrath because of that. Every human being stands apart from God, deserves God's wrath. That's how holy he is. He's holy. That means set apart. And God has two expressed actions in his holiness, justice and love. And his justice demands he destroys sin, but his love led him to give his son Jesus, to put him on the cross, to be the place where that happens, to be the object on which sin is paid. Those who reject this loving gift of God are destined to face his wrath. There is no other way. There is no other atonement for sin. There is no alternative option to get into heaven as a sinner. Those who reject God's love gift of his son will experience eternal conscious punishment forever after they die. That's just the reality of it. There's no other way. You have to accept Jesus Christ into your life in order to have the benefit of your sin atoned for and forgiven. There was a person maybe four or five years ago who left our church, and they said one of the reasons we left the church is you and the other pastors, all you do is you talk about this sin, and you talk about this wrath, and it's just not very nice. Why don't you just talk about nice things like love and how we're, we're just trying and we're all good people? And I said, what if you were diagnosed with cancer and your doctor knew it, nobody else? And your doctor sat there and said, you know, I probably should tell them, but a cancer diagnosis is a really tough thing to deal with. That's a really hard life, and it means a lot of pain. It means a lot of suffering. It means a lot of, it's not good news. So I'm not going to tell them about that. I'm just going to tell them everything's fine and let them go on and live. Is that loving? Is that kind? The most unloving thing any pastor can do is not tell you the truth about where the human condition stands apart from the living God. It's the most unloving thing because the, eternal, the stakes are eternal. We're not talking about a bad day. We're talking about eternity separated from God and eternal conscious punishment. And the only way out of that is what you do with Jesus Christ. So Paul paints this picture of reality. And he takes us to the death valley of the soul. You look at all this stuff and you're like, oh. And you feel the weight of it and the darkness of it. And then he moves to the mountaintop because of what Jesus Christ has done. And then come, I think, the two greatest words in the English translation of the Bible. He paints this picture, and then he goes to the greatest transition humankind will ever know. Let's back up to verse 1 and read through so we get a picture here. Here's the life of the unbeliever. And you were dead in your sin, trespasses and sins in which you previously lived according to the ways of this world, according to the rule of the power of the air, the spirit that is now working in the disobedient. Now he goes uh, internal. We too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carried out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts, and we were by nature children under wrath as the others were. Are you ready for it? Here it comes. But God, but God, God saw us in that state. God saw us in that desperation. He saw us in the death valley of the soul, and he didn't just leave us there. By his love, he did something. It says, but God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with Christ even though we are dead in our trespasses. God did something absolutely amazing. 
Scholars tell us that that phrase that we see there, verse 5, made us alive, is a synonym to the phrase raised from the dead. You see, human beings apart from Christ are radically dead. We saw that. But what they need is a radical resurrection. And what we have when you become a child of God and you give your life to Jesus Christ, you have a radical resurrection in your heart. You are pulled out from the death valley of the soul and you are placed on the mountaintop of heaven because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross. When we were dead to our sins, we are depraved in every area. And now all those areas are being made new and alive in Christ Jesus. When you ask him in and he comes into the place of your heart and he radically changes you and gives you new life. There was a great businessman named Charles Fuller who became a great evangelist in the 1900s and he was on a business trip out west uh, apart from his wife and all of a sudden his wife received a very short but powerful letter and it said this, there has been a complete change in my life. Sunday I went up to Los Angeles to hear Paul Rader preach. I never heard such a sermon in all of my life. Ephesians chapter 1.18 says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. Now my whole life and aims and ambitions are all changed. I feel now I want to serve God if he would use me instead of my previous goal in life to make all the money I can in the world. Radical transformation. God takes us from the death pit of death valley and brings us out, and we are made new. We have unending life in its fullness. And we have that promise that when we die, we will enter into the gates of heaven for those who have given their lives to Jesus Christ. And those who have given their lives to Jesus Christ in the meantime have eternity here in their hearts now. And the goal is to be made formed into the image of Jesus while you are here. That's what we are to do while we live on this earth. We are to be formed into God's image. Look at verses 6 and 7. He also raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavens of Christ Jesus on the mountaintop so that in the coming ages he might display the immeasurable richness of his grace through his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Why does God do this? He's going to place us, he's going to put us on display if you've given your life to Jesus Christ, it says he's going to put you on display. Why? So people can say, look how great those people are. No, Just so people can say they were so dead in the pit, they had no idea, no way to get out, no ability to get out, no desire to get out, and God reached down, pulled them up, put them up, and the display is to his glory and his power to look at what he can do. There's an African proverb it's a little story. It goes like this. That someone came to this African woman who lived in this hut in the middle of the uh, desert out in Africa and asked her if she has any treasure. And the very wise woman sat there and thought, and she went back into her hut, and one-room hut, and she came out with her two kids, and she said, here is my treasure. You see, as children of God, we are God's treasure. Not to declare how great we are as treasure, but to declare how great he is. People who are saved by grace are the treasure of God that he puts on display through the world so the world can see how amazing he is. As Christians, we are in the death valley of the soul and we are brought to the heights of heaven, seated with Christ Jesus. But what is the way to new life? How does that 
happen? Why did God do it? Verse 4 says, because God is rich in his mercy, abounding in love. Now he expresses beyond all these things his grace. His grace and his mercy took his hand of judgment that has to be placed upon sin and moved it from us as the target to his son as the target. And his son absorbed the hand of judgment against sin from the holy God. We deserve justice and punishment. We receive grace. Grace is not getting what we deserve. Grace is unearned favor or liking from God. Unearned favor or liking from God. We didn't deserve it. We didn't earn it. We didn't do anything. We could pay it back. He saved us because he is good. We are saved by his grace. We deserve punishment. By grace, he gave us forgiveness. We deserve wrath. By grace, he gave us relief. We deserve hell. By grace, he gives us heaven. We deserve misery. By grace, he gives us hope. We deserve guilt and shame. By grace, he gives us honor and glory to stand as his trophies of mercy. We deserve damnation. By grace, he delivered us and set us free. And we could go on and on and on and on. From start to finish, God's saving work is all of grace. Tim Keller puts this act of the gospel this way. He says, we are more sinful than we ever dared to believe, yet at the same time more loved and accepted by Jesus than we could ever dare to imagine. You see, that's the gospel of Jesus Christ, bathed in grace. So how do we get this gift how do we become new? How do we get moved from the pit of the soul of death to the heavens and the earth? How does that happen? It happens through faith. Let's take a look. Verse 8, for you have saved by grace through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is God's gift not from works so that no one can boast. Faith is a kind of a term that's hard to understand at times. Faith simply means this. It means trust. It means reliance. It means depending on something or someone. When you place faith in something, you are trusting and depending on that person. And when we place our trust in the person of Jesus Christ and we place our trust in the fact that what he did on the cross saves us and brings us out from the pit into the heights of heaven, that is faith. Our whole lives, this gift of Jesus is applied to us when we trust, when we believe in his work on the cross and what he did for us. That means we can't say, I need to do this, this, and this so I have, I'm good enough to get to heaven. I can't come to church to so make sure I get points so God looks at me. No, no, that's garbage. It doesn't work that way. There's nothing you could ever do enough. All you have to do is have faith that you trust that Jesus Christ's work on the cross was enough. That his work is what saves me. His work is what gets me to heaven. If you were to die and go to heaven, and this won't happen, I don't think, but if there is a reporter there asking you why should you be let in, you say, by the blood of Jesus Christ, not because of anything I've done. I rely completely upon the cross. My trust, my dependence, how I'm going to get to heaven isn't based in one thing Dan DeRoshi does. It's based in the work of Jesus Christ. 
And that is trust. That is the faith that opens up this amazing gift that moves you from the depths of sin to the heights of heaven. When God comes and opens our eyes to the gospel, we realize and believe. And that's what saves us. What an amazing gift. God takes us from the depths of sin to the heights of heaven by his grace, through his faith. Do you know that God still does that today? He's doing it all the time, all over the world. When I look out, I see stories. There's stories of trophies here of God's grace. And it continues on even beyond Crossview Church. Ravi Zacharias, who's a pastor and author I love, says, as low as the valley is, God can bring us to the mountain of salvation in Christ. And in his book, Has Christianity Failed You? Ravi Zacharias points out one of the greatest proofs of the truth of Christ and the reality of his resurrection is the changed lives of Christian people. He writes, during the course of nearly 40 years, I've traveled virtually to every continent and seen and heard some of the most amazing testimonies of God's intervention in the most extreme circumstances. I've seen hardened criminals touched by the message of Jesus and their hearts turned toward good in a way that no amount of rehabilitation could accomplish. I've seen ardent followers of a radical belief system turn from being violent, brutal terrorists to mild, tender-hearted followers of Jesus. I've seen nations where the gospel was banned and silenced by governments has nevertheless conquered the ethos and the mindset of an entire culture. Then in his own words, Zacharias lists examples of Christ's power to transform lives. In the middle of the 20th century, after destroying all the Christian seminary libraries in the country, Chairman Mao declared that Christianity had been permanently removed and dead in China forever, never to make a return. On Easter Sunday, 2009, a leading English newspaper in Hong Kong published a picture in Tiananmen Square of a banner that was put over the face of Chairman Mao that said, Christ is risen. I've been in the Middle East and marveled at the commitment of young people who have risked their lives to attend a Bible study. I've talked to CEOs of large companies in Islamic nations who testify to seeing Jesus in visions and dreams and wonder what it all means. British author A.N. Wilson, only a few years ago, was known for his scathing attacks on Christianity. He celebrated Easter at a church in 2009 with a group of other church members, proclaiming that the story of Jesus and the gospel is the only story that makes sense out of life and its challenges. He said, My own return to faith has surprised none more than myself. My belief has come about in large measure because of the lives and examples of people I have known, not the famous, not the saints that we hear in church, but friends and relations who have lived and faced death in light of this resurrection story and in the quiet acceptance that they have a future of where they're going to go when they die. Matthew Paris, a British atheist who visited Malawi in 2008, wrote in an article, As an atheist, I truly believe Africa needs God. I have become convinced of the enormous contribution that Christian evangelism makes in Africa. I used to avoid this truth, but Christians black and white working in Africa to do heal the sick, they do teach people to read and write, and in only the severest kinds of seculars could see a mission hospital or school and say the world would be better off without it. You see, this act of God, but God, changes the course of history for human beings and moves them from the depths to the heights.
So what should we do in response to this? If you've made the decision to follow Jesus Christ, then your main goal and ambition in life should be to be formed into Jesus' image while you're here on earth. To spend time with him in prayer, time in the word, being formed, taking those old habits, those inclinations of sin, confessing it, repenting it, and asking God to set you free. I'm going to encourage you to do something as we're in this series called The Amazing Christian. One thing we love is the app on phones called YouVersion. And if you go to YouVersion, you can also go to the resource page on our website at crossurapids.org. But you're going to find this reading through the Word Bible plan called 21 Days in Ephesians. And even is set up on our, the uh, Bible translation we use here at Crossview. 21 Days in Ephesians. You do this every single day. The phone reminds you. It creates this habit in you to go to God's Word and be formed by it. And what I love about this, I went through it over the summer. What I love about this is not only does it take you through a small chunk of Ephesians each day, but it also teaches you how to study the Bible for yourself. Because you'll read a section, and then all of a sudden you'll have this pop up as the devotional. And it'll give you one of the key verses that you read. And then it says, engage with God's word. One, ask God to help you understand and believe and be transformed as you read his word. Pray. Number two, summarize the passage in one phrase or sentence. So you have a journal or a piece of paper where you summarize this. Copy key verses into your journal or notebook. Write down any thoughts, impressions, or questions you may have. Ask God to show you how this passage applies to your life today and pray for faith to act on anything God would ask you to do. It teaches you how to take the word of God and use it so you're formed to Christ and you'll create a 21-day habit of that. Download that app, version. put it on your phone, and take a look at this and walk through this. If you have questions about it, it's on our resource page on our website, and I encourage you, if you're a believer, to be formed in Christ. Second, if you've never asked God into your life, if you've never begun a relationship with him, if you feel like you are living in that unbelieving pit and you've never tasted that resurrection life, this is the day to make that change. This is the day for you to open your life to God who saved you and say, God, will you rule and reign in my heart? I want to be with you forever in heaven. I want to live a new life. I don't want to be this pairing signal with the ruler of the air. I want to live in a new way. I want to live with the cross of Jesus between me and all these external things where I'm basking in the love and the presence of Jesus Christ. If that's you and you'd like to do that, I'd like to walk you through a prayer where you can do that right now. So I'm going to ask every head to bow. And if you want to invite Jesus Christ into your life, all you have to do is pray this prayer after me in the quietness of your soul. We're not going to put this on display. Just in the quietness of your soul, If you want to make that decision, go ahead and pray this prayer. Jesus, I thank you that you take us from death to life. I thank you that you died on the cross in my place. Right here and now, I want to say I believe in you. And I place my trust in you and the work of your cross to cleanse me from my sin. I repent and I ask forgiveness for all my sins. 
Please live, rule, and reign inside me from this day forward. And now I'm going to pray for all of us as well. Father in heaven, we thank you for the gift of your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you that when we're in the depths of sin, that that's not the end of the story. And that we can rejoice in those two words, but God, because you are rich in mercy and love. And you saw us apart from you and you moved to save us. And so we thank you, God, for that. We ask that the reality of that would be the voice and the song and the noise that hits our hearts louder than anything else we experience in this life. Let us be tuned in. Let us be formed into your image. By your spirit and your word, we ask this. In Jesus' name, amen. If you made that decision to follow Christ for the first time and you'd like to talk about this with somebody or we'd love to help you get on the road to this, there's people available in our prayer room and uh, the prayer room's just right to the left of the children's check-in area across from the coffee area. If you've made a decision or you have questions about this, how do you begin a relationship with Jesus, anything like that, please stop by the prayer room before you leave. It's more important than anything else you got going on today. So please stop by and talk to somebody if that's you, okay? Please stand as we worship.